starting at Romans 3, verse 27. Where, there, where then is boasting? It is excluded. On what principle? On that of observing the law? No, but on that of faith. For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from observing the law. Is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles too? Yes, of Gentiles too. Since there is only one God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through that same faith. Do we then nullify the law by this faith? Not at all. Rather, we uphold the law. What then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather, discovered in this matter? If in fact Abraham was justified by works, he had something to boast about, but not before God. What does scripture say? Abraham believed God and was credited to him as righteousness. Now, when a man works, his wages are not credited to him as a gift, but as an obligation. However, to the man who does not work, but trusts God who justifies the wicked, his faith is credited as righteousness. David says the same thing when he speaks of the blessedness of the man to whom God credits the righteousness apart from works. Blessed are they whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will never count against him. Is this blessedness only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? We have been saying that Abraham's faith was credited to him, credited to him as righteousness. Under what circumstances was it credited? Was it after he was circumcised or before? It was not after, but before, and he received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. So then, he is the father of all who believe, but have not been circumcised, in order that the righteousness might be credited to them. And he is also the father of the circumcised, who not only are circumcised, but who also walk in the footsteps of faith, that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. It was not through law that Abraham and his offspring received the promise that he would be the heir of the world, but through the righteousness that comes by faith. For if those who live by the law are heirs, faith has no value and the promise is worthless, because law brings wrath, and if there is no law, then there is no transgression. Therefore, the promise comes by faith, so that it may be by grace and may be guaranteed to all Abraham's offspring, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those that are of the faith of Abraham. He is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations. He is our father in the sight of God, in whom he believed. The God who gives life to the dead and calls things that are not as though they were. Against all hope, Abraham in hope believed, and so became the father of many nations. Just as it had been said to him, so shall your offspring be. Without weakening in his faith, he faced the fact that his body was as good as dead, since he was about a hundred years old, 
and that Sarah's womb was also dead. Yet he did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God, but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God, being fully persuaded that God had the power to do what he had promised. This is why it was credited to him as righteousness. The words it was credited to him were written not for him alone, but also for us, to whom God will credit righteousness. For us who believe in him, who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead, he was delivered over death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. This is the word of the Lord. Well, as we start a new uh, term, as it were, we're returning on Sunday mornings um, and in our uh, house groups, um, in their Bible studies, to uh, the Apostle Paul's great work, which is his letter to the Christian community at Rome. When we last looked at it, we covered uh, chapters 1 to 3, and this time we'll cover chapters 4 to 8. Today, though, we'll just recap over 1 to 3 and uh, consider chapter 4 and finish by 3 o'clock this afternoon. Um, So uh, let's refresh our understanding. Um, We have, um, as Paul does, uh, we need to recall the bad news before, of course, we get to the good news. We look to first how Paul understands the situation that all human beings find themselves in before we can learn what God's solution is. So what's the situation? It's quite stark and it would kind of um, really jar against many people's ears in our particular culture. But Paul understands that the world is under God's wrath. Now, that's not a capricious thing. It's not a question of, uh, you know, a deity with rather kind of um, serious mood swings or one who tends to get a bit drunk, like Bacchus, or um, one who um, has his bad days. No, God is absolutely straight and he's absolutely fair and he has no favourites. But sin, because it so spoils his creation, because it ruins lives, because it destroys people, because it hurts them and harms them, and because it messes life up, that wherever he finds it, and whoever he finds it in, is opposed to him and comes under his judgment. And he says quite clearly that everyone has to give an account to him and that one day it will be punished. We enjoy a period of mercy when he exercises patience. And Paul sees human beings that he says they all do, in fact, know God. And he gives two reasons. One is through creation, that creation requires a creator. Something has to be there before something can come into existence. Nothing can come out of nothing. And then there is conscience, the sort of moral barometer we have, which, although not perfect, does remind us from time to time that we are adrift. Now, of course, Paul says that we suppress those two indicators so that we can live the kind of life that we want to live, a life which is sometimes referred to by Paul quite strongly as a wicked life. 
You see, belief and behaviour go together. One reinforces the other. Thinking becomes futile and behaviour becomes fallen. And God's reaction to that is to give us human beings a long lead. We're still attached. If we weren't attached, the whole thing would just degenerate into total anarchy and destruction. No, he gives us a long lead and allows us our autonomy, our freedom. The words he uses a couple of times in the first chapter is, he gave them over. Okay, he says, you do it your way. You'll find out what happens. And we see the, the worst of that when, for example, sometimes there's a hurricane and there's a mass destruction. They mobilise, certainly in America, the National Guard. Why? Because people degenerate into looting and stealing and other kinds of crimes which they wouldn't otherwise do when there is a period of law and order. So... That gives us just a hint of what it would be like without God's restraining hand. You see, when there is no belief in God, there becomes a vacuum. And we end up worshipping not the creator, but we end up worshipping created things. And they can sometimes become our gods. A friend of mine took me to see Manchester United. He's a very good friend. It cost him a lot of money, particularly as he took my wife as well. That, of course, required quite a lot of preparatory work. Uh, just to know which colour we're supposed to be supporting. You know. And this is... Ho Sorry, dear. This is... Uh, and, uh, you know, 75,000 people. It was an interesting experience. I quite enjoyed it except Manchester United, there was more enthusiasm in my under-13 team at school, I think, than they managed to play with, and they lost, really. But for some people, you can see the parallels between, you know, the support you have for a Premier League football club and coming to church. You see, both of them can be, you know, gatherings which happen on a weekly basis, that uh, people are gathered together for a common purpose. They can sometimes get excited. They have a sense of camaraderie. Uh, they have their heroes. Uh, they even have their community singing. And there is a sense of achievement. Although with football, it requires you to have won but not, fortunately, for us as Christians. But there is a danger if we allow such things to become our number one interest in life, because it's a case of worshipping the created as opposed to the creator. And, of course, one example he gives is sexuality, which goes awry if our thinking goes wonky, if we uh, don't put God first and see things through his eyes and follow his ways, then everything else gets skewed. And he gives an example of a good gift, sexuality, which uh, used in the right contact, context is excellent, but not in the wrong context. And he says they receive in themselves the due penalty for their perversion. You see, sin has consequences. We're made to live in a particular way, and if we don't, we malfunction and we mess up. What at the end of chapter 132, Paul adds, 
which is somewhat surprising, is that we human beings know we deserve death or exclusion from the presence of God for our rebellion. It's surprising because many secularists would, of course, tell us that uh, that's not what they experience. They don't think that they're in the wrong with God at all. But just one wrong thought, one wrong action, one wrong word a day is 21 a week, is over a 1,000 a year, and you multiply that by how many years you are, and that's your previous when you face God, which is not terribly impressive, probably. Of course, the main thing is that we don't put God first. These things, our sins, are just a consequence of not doing that. But I'd venture to suggest that Paul is right, that many more people than we might imagine are, in fact, aware of where they fall short. In chapter 2, Paul anticipates various critics. He anticipates the Jewish moralist who is so sharp in spotting the faults of others that he was so blind to his own. And yet the Gentiles could see the hypocrisy of the Jews very clearly. And Paul warns them, the Jews, who think that they're so righteous that they are, chapter 2, verse 8, self-seeking, who reject the truth and follow evil. They were stirring up wrath against themselves for the day of God's anger. There's no good for the Jew to place uh, hope in their special privilege, in their racial background as the people of God, in their possession of the law, the Ten Commandments, in their religious rituals such as circumcision. Those external rites are useless and meaningless unless, of course, there is some internal realisation of what those things signify and following them. Going through the motions won't suffice. And then we get to chapter 3. Jew and Gentile alike are both under sin. 3.18, no fear of God before their eyes. Now this brownie point system of thinking, in other words, follow the Ten Commandments, clock up enough points, and you get in God's good books. Well, it's doomed as far as the apostles concerned. Try it, and we'll have all failed it by next Monday. So where does that leave us? Well, it leaves us awfully under God's wrath. Further, there's nothing that we can do to get ourselves out from under it. We are doomed without sounding too alarmist. God's problem is that He's so implacably opposed to sin that he has to condemn and punish it. It is so alien to him and so destructive to his world that it has to be eradicated. But if he does that, it's goodbye to us, all of us, every human being who's ever lived. Now this downward slide that Paul writes about in the kind of mid-60s, of the first century, when the Roman, the Greek, and the culture around them was on a downward slide, morally and spiritually. That has been repeated in different centuries, in different countries over time. And it's been tragic, 
but it's not been the end. So take, for example, the 18th century in Great Britain. Great in some respects, awful in others. Let me introduce you to Hogarth. Um, the 18th century was the birth of the modern era. Scientific discovery, global exploration, industrial revolution. But at the beginning of the century, it was in the moral and spiritual pits, as the painter Hogarth, with his cartoons and his engravings and paintings, manages to satirize brilliantly. A rake's progress is... Uh, it tells the story of the fictional Tom Rakewell in a series of eight paintings by Hogarth. A rake is short for Rakehell, which was otherwise a person who was otherwise known in that time as a hell raiser. If you've ever done 17th century history, you may have even heard of the Hellfire Club. And such a person was often prodigal, wasting his usually inherited fortune on gambling, wine, women, and song, and incurring lavish debts in the process. Now, Tom inherits a fortune from his miserly father, but then follows a path of vice and destruction. These paintings are from 1733. So, in this scene, we meet our hero, Tom Rakewell. He's just inherited this fortune, and his house, his father's house, is now yielding up its hoarded wealth. Now, Tom attempts to pay off a servant girl who's called Sarah Young in the left of the picture. You can't see it, but she holds a gold ring in her hand, revealing an earlier but now retracted promise of marriage. Behind him, uh, there is the inheritance lawyer who's stealing his coins, an upholsterer attaching fabric to the wall and finding money hidden there, which tumbles out. There's money in the fireplaces hidden. And he's becoming a very wealthy man, although he's being ripped off in the process. Well, next, in his new palatial town lodgings, Tom holds a morning reception in the manner of fashionable gentlemen of the time. Now, there are several visitors who come to offer their services, and, of course, uses money up. In the bottom right, there's a jockey. There's a dancing master in the centre with a violin. There's a landscape gardener We're holding a plan. There's a poet, a tailor, a musician at the harpsichord, believed to be Handel himself, who was Hogarth's great rival. It's three o'clock in the morning this time and Tom is drunk and he's receiving the attentions of prostitutes at the Rose Tavern in Covent Garden. A night watchman's staff and lantern lie beside him in the bottom right, souvenirs of his rowdy night on the streets. Two, two ladies relieve Tom of his watch. Well, by now, Tom has squandered his fortune. On the way to the Queen's birthday reception at St. James's Palace, he narrowly escapes arrest for debt. He's saved by the loyal Sarah Young, now a milliner who pays his bill with the money that she's raised from her humble work. 
Then, impoverished but accustomed to a life of luxury and excess, Tom marries an old woman for her fortune. The shabby setting is Marylebone Church, which then was well known as a venue for clandestine weddings on the northern fringes of London. Tom is clearly interested more in the pretty young maid than his one-eyed bride. And behind them, in the distance, is Sarah Young and her mother being held back at the church door. We're in the Whites Club in Soho, and Tom Wigless is cursing his fate that he's gambled away his second fortune. He's not the only loser here, a dejected highwayman with a pistol and mask protruding from his pocket sits by the fire. A nobleman, eager to continue playing, pleads with a moneylender for more in advance. Only the two croupiers in the background, very faded, have noticed the smoke that's curling in from behind the panelling. Everyone else gambles on, unaware of the impending danger. Well, now Tim, uh, Tom is, uh, is centred left, is an inmate of the fleet, London's notorious debtor's prison. He's sunk into despair and is exhibiting the first signs of impending madness. The beer boy to his left harasses him for payment while the jailer above him demands his weekly bill is paid. Tom's wife next to him scolds him for having squandered her fortune and Sarah Young to the right, visiting with their child, has fainted from distress at the scene. And Tom finally has descended into madness. He's now in Bethlehem Hospital, or Bedlam as it was known. The inmates around him are a tailor in the centre at the bottom, a musician to the left, an astronomer, an archbishop even, all suffering from various delusions. One man thinks he's the king in the back. He's naked, he's carrying a straw crown and a stick for a scepter. Bedlam in those days was actually open to the public and there's two fashionable ladies who are there sightseeing. For them it's an amusing day out observing the poor suffering lunatics as they were called in those days. And the ever faithful Sarah Young sits weeping by Tom's side. It is tragic, it is foolish, it is an unnecessary waste of a life that caused much damage to others. And at many points in that life, Tom is reminded of a way out, perhaps personified by the faithful Sarah Young. It was in many ways the 18th century, a repeat of the first century that Paul is writing about here in his letters. But you may know that the 18th century, whilst it started off like this, in such a sorry state, it didn't end like that, because at exactly the same year that Hogarth paints these, people like Wesley and Whitfield were converted, and they were raised up by God to share the gospel that Paul writes about in Romans chapter 3, that we'll look at in a minute. And people were in such a state, they'd come to the end of themselves, that they actually willingly turned to the God who offered them a way out of the situation that they were in. 
to give just one consequence. By the end of the, of the 18th century, a third of the children in England were attending Sunday school each week. The ruinous lottery and the dreadful slave trade were in the process of being abolished. The country turned away from folly and sin to a greater degree of righteousness and godliness. And such a cycle has happened in places in many countries since Paul was writing. We may in our country, in the Western world, still be on the way down. But when we get near the bottom, God will raise up people to remind people of his gospel which gets them out of the pit of despair that they get themselves into. So let's turn to Paul's outline of the gospel message which has proved so powerful in changing lives. So when um, an individual is so alienated from God and messing up his or her own life and that of others, what can God do? Well, I think you know the answer. It comes in Romans 3, 21 to 26. He has to rescue us. And he does it in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, who substituted himself. He endured the punishment for sin that every human being should endure. When he died on the cross, was abandoned by God and excluded from his presence for the first time ever in his existence. He had come among us as a human being so that he could represent us. By being divine, he was also perfect and could effectively substitute himself for us. He did not deserve punishment of any kind since he never did anything wrong. But he took it upon himself. He took our sins upon himself. And God's wrath was able to punish them. Justice divine was thereby satisfied. God, the just ruler of the universe, did what he had to do. The language used is a word called propitiation. God's wrath is said to be propitiated. In other words, that it was satisfied justice has been done. The crime committed, a punishment executed. It's just that there is a divine human exchange going on. Now some people object to this, but in objecting they usually get the real God mixed up with all sorts of primitive notions of deities. So in primitive religion you may well get some crotchety old deity who's had a bad day and he wants to just react by waking up and chucking thunderbolts at random down on earth. But he's usually easily bought off by the people with some kind of petty, trivial sacrifice. Now that is a far cry from a God who does not change, who is absolutely consistent and who is always against sin. Who can't be propitiated by the people because they have nothing to offer with which to satisfy his justice. And that's why he has to provide the sacrifice for them himself. God is then in a position to be able to forgive us. He is both just 
And in chapter, five, uh, chapter 4, verse 5, is said to be the one who justifies the wicked, which must rank as probably one of the most astonishing statements in the whole Bible. He justifies the wicked. Now, if you're computer literate, you know what justified means. It means making straight, having a perfect alignment to the left or the right. Of course, the word comes from the law courts. Imagine the scene. Up in the dock at the Crown Court, the three prosecuting witnesses are cross-examined, in this case the Bible, the devil and conscience, and each of those condemns us. The judge must declare us unjust, guilty. However, our advocate speaks on our behalf. In fact, he only needs to show his hands and the judge sees that the punishment for this crime has already been paid. Those in the dock can go free. They're in the clear. A fresh start is available. Now, how is this available? The answer of chapter 4 is that it is uh, available to us by faith, and only by faith. Now, Paul is stressing to uh, his his readers, that this is no new idea. Now, they may have thought that the Jewish religion was a brownie point system, but it was never originally meant to be. And he goes all the way back to the first Jew, Abraham, and to King David. So chapter 4 begins with an attack on the idea that you could justify yourself by works, by the things you do which you deem good. Well, Abraham, he says, verse 3, believed, and then he was declared right with God, not the other way around. The example of money is given in verse 4. You see, you either have money given to you, or you have to work for it. And he points out that you can't earn righteousness or justification. You have to be given it, as Abraham was. And as David, in verses 7 and 8, knew, in one of his songs he writes, Blessed are they whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will never count against him. So the picture here is of lifting of a burden, of covering an ugly sight, and of cancelling a debt. Now, David knew the agony long before the days of uh, psychosomatic vocabulary of wrestling with a guilty conscience and of having that burden lifted, those sins covered, that sense of obligation being removed. Well, if works don't work, nor do religious rituals, Paul says, such as circumcision in verses 9 to 12. Abraham, he points out, believed first, then was circumcised, the ritual being a symbol of the reality, verse 11. And nor is the law much good either. It only condemns. Abraham didn't in fact have the law. That was introduced through Moses about 700 years later. The law then divided the Jews from other nations. By being justified by faith, Abraham is the father of not just the ethnic Jews, 
but all who are justified by faith, the believing Jew and the believing Gentile. Justification by faith, being put right with God just by putting your trust in that he can deliver on what he promises is a great leveler. It puts us all in the same position. And how did Abraham come to believe, verses 17 to 22? Well, he looked at the facts and he exercised faith. His situation was this. He was 100 years old and his wife was not much younger and they had no children. Reproductively, they were dead. There was no hope of having any kids. And yet God had promised that they would. And Abraham did something, verse 21, being fully persuaded that God had the power to do what he promised. Now, in order for God to keep his promise, Abraham reckoned that God had to have the power. He had to be able to keep that promise. And he also reckoned that God was trustworthy, that not only was he able to do it, but that he could be relied upon to keep that promise. And he judged that God was both those things. That was the foundation for the decision he made to trust God, to exercise faith in God. For that, we read, he was credited with righteousness or justified by faith, 4, 23 and 24. We, 4,000 years later, find ourselves in the same position as Abraham. We are dead in our sins. We face an otherwise hopeless future. But the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ is again in action. We read verse 25 of chapter 4, delivering him, that's Jesus, to death for our sins and raising him, that's Jesus, to life for our justification. Think it out. Be like Abraham. Use our brains. There's no believing without thinking. The first fact is that we are naturally sinful and that we are dead and doomed. The second fact, the hope, is that by the cross our sins have been taken from us and dealt with. They have been punished. And by the resurrection, we know it works. God is saying, by raising Jesus from the dead, that he approves of his sacrifice for our sins. And the risen Christ is able to share his new life with us. So God has the power to forgive sins. He has a track record of keeping his word. And we can trust his offer of forgiveness that he puts before us. Faith comes in as we take God at his word. Martin Luther. This is the mystery of the riches of divine grace for sinners, he writes. For by a wonderful exchange, our sins are now not ours, but Christ's. And Christ's righteousness, or right relationship with God the Father, is not Christ's, but ours. 
You see, for Luther, that realization was a light bulb moment which lit up the whole of Western Christianity. And maybe that's true for somebody here today as well this morning. Let us pray. Let's reflect for a moment. Do we uh, live in a kind of theological fog? Do we uh, draw near to God, aware of our shortcomings, but very unclear and so consequentially unsure how God can be in a position to forgive us? Let us recall this exchange that's recorded by Paul, discovered afresh by Luther, and achieved and delivered by God himself. Heavenly Father, may we exchange our sin for your righteousness and have the assurance of eternal life. That is a life that begins now. And out of gratitude, we live in conformity to Christ's example. And we look forward to its culmination in the age to come. Amen.